This week on Behind the Idea, we talk about Ligand Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol LGND. The company and the Seeking Alpha author who recently wrote about it expound the shots on goal philosophy as a way to explain the company's business model and how it's a more diversified biotech pick. But it's also been the target of several short sellers over the year. So does this translate into a high percentage investment opportunity? And what do Ligand's shots look like? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we are talking about Ligand Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol LGND. Ligand, possibly Ligand, not sure, is a biopharmaceutical company with an unusual risk management and revenue strategy. And Seeking Alpha author Eight Diamonds Advisors likes the opportunity based on free cash flow yield and a promising product pipeline. Our question is, can you de-risk a biotech company while still preserving the upside? That's what we'll talk about today. But before we begin... Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work based on ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and books by Joel Greenblatt. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any stocks we expect to discuss because we don't really invest in bio... Well, we don't really invest in biotech, although I'd like to try it someday. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Do your own due diligence. Also, before we begin, Behind the Ideas brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus is designed to get you exclusive ideas, email alerts, and newsletters so you can get a higher signal to noise in your research experience. Warren Buffett reads all day, but Warren Buffett has a lot of control over the way his day goes. Not all of us have the ability to read all day. Pro Plus gives you more leverage on your use of Seeking Alpha, so then you can go and do further analysis and research while still having time left over to listen to podcasts or do other fun stuff. Pro Plus, available at SeekingAlpha.com slash Pro Plus, that's SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S, available 30-day money-back guarantee on an annual subscription, curated by my co-host, Mike Taylor, and the Pro Plus editors. Go check it out and get more out of your day. More out of your day. So let's get into uh, Ligand. I'm going to pronounce it Ligand. We can do Ligand. I'm not sure. I, until you said it on the call, I wasn't sure which it was. What does, For our purposes, it's Ligand. So do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Where do we? Where do we want to start? Let's start with the... The key elements of a diamond advisor's thesis here, uh, which I think is pretty, we were discussing before the call, is pretty consistent with how management chooses to present the company. And we'll talk a little bit about how we sort of think about some of those things. I think the key first aspect of the Ligand story centers around the idea of having 
a somewhat diversified portfolio of product candidates. Uh, the multiple shots on goal thing. Before we get into that, though, probably just like a top level recap of Ligand's business model and strategy is in order. So Ligand basically develops and licenses intellectual property that's related to the creation of monoclonal antibodies. And in this sense, Ligand is in the like true biotechnology space. They're involved in the production of human monoclonal antibodies, but these are created within these genetically modified mice, rats, and chickens, I guess. So they genetically modify these animals so that they produce human monoclonal antibodies, which are part of the immune system and can help fight disease. I am not a doctor or a scientist or a biochemist or anything of that kind. I think monoclonal antibodies are those things that are shaped like Y, like a Y, and then they attach to whatever bad things that might enter your body. Ligand uses chickens and rats to sort of as sort of farms for these cells or cell-like structures. But then what's, so that's all kind of like fine. That that all sounds like high risk drug development. Part of the thesis that 8Diamond has is, well, they, they have so many different potential applications for that technology that they have lots of chances to bring something to market. And that's the multiple shots on goal thing. So Daniel, what do you think about this like shots on goal idea? I have thoughts, but I want to hear you. Well, it seems like a manage because the management team uses this as part of their pitch as well. And shots on goal, I mean, they may as well drop the Wayne Gretzky line about you have to know where the puck – you skate to where the puck is going. It just seems like a, you're trying too hard to illustrate something that I think is – so that's like a yellow flag off the top. But then I think – Let's get into the actual idea. The idea, as I understand it, is they have essentially two main ways for supporting other companies in terms of developing drugs. They have Captasol, which, as I understand, is a chemical agent that helps kind of bind the drugs together. I could be wrong on the specifics, but I, that's how I understood Captasol, which is ongoing. And then they have this OmniAb, which is the Omni-rat, omni-mouse, and omni-chicken that you sort of referred to, which is another way to kind of develop antibodies that can then help potentially with drug development, so I get it. And so it's almost like a – in a weird way, it's almost like they're a hedge fund or a asset management firm, but their assets that they're investing in the other companies are these technologies. And then if those technologies – if they invest in 200 shots on goal and five of them become successful drugs that accrue royalty income to them down the line. Then in theory, they, they will benefit from that. They will garner re royalty revenue down the line. And so right now their mo main revenue lines are royalties or their licensing and mi milestone 
from the drug development process. So I get there's there's a sense to this, right? There's a sense of instead of putting all our eggs in developing drug XYZ, we have 200 drugs that we're helping to develop that are in various stages of development and we can continue to help develop them. And then we'll garner some sort of we get some fees up front to kind of keep the lights on. And then at some point royalties come in and that goes really well. And, you know, I don't know the full history of Promacta, which we can get to, but that's, that's sort of what that exemplifies. And to that degree, it reminds me of something like Charles River Laboratories, a company that helps you test drugs and does the drug testing process without actually developing them mm-hmm. themselves. So I get it. I think it's a little too clever by half, but I get what they're trying to convey as the opportunity. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So I have a take that's similar to that and maybe even more aggressive. But before I get to that, I'm going to just run through. So Captasol is something that improves solubility and stability and bioavailability of active pharmaceutical ingredients. So basically something that helps make drugs work better or clinical candidates work better. So I don't know. In my imagination, it's kind of like a company is developing a molecule that or a monoclonal or something that could potentially help people, but it's tough to get it into an ingestible form or into a form where it's sort of more active within a person's system. And that's what Captasol does. It's sort of increases the usability maybe of uh, drugs. I also wanted to back up and clear up my characterization of an antibody, which it looks like is a large protein, not a cell. And it's created by sort of cells in the immune system. But back to shots on goal, I think that this is, I think investors can take this concept too far. One thing that I've seen some people do, I'm not saying that Eight Diamonds has done this, but uh, they sort of treat each product that's going through the clinical trial process as one sort of shot at approval, marketing, and large revenues on down the road. And then they, some analysts sort of treat, they're like, okay, so the probability from phase one to all the way through the FDA's process to market is like around 10% or less, maybe even for probability of successfully bringing a phase one candidate all the way to market and cashing in. Some authors will say, okay, you have 10 shots on goal, each one of these is in phase one, and then they'll treat each of these trials as independent of each other, independent chances. And so they'll say, well, each one has a 90% chance of not making it. But if each of these trials is independent, then 90% to the 10th power is 35%. So that means that there's a 35% chance that all of them wouldn't make it to market, meaning that it's actually more likely and not that one of the drugs will make it to market. And I have a problem with that and similar reasoning in that I think that a lot of these technologies have correlated outcomes and therefore the trials aren't 
the shots on goal aren't independent from each other. And so if one's not working, it's likely that most of the other ones aren't going to work either. So it's a little bit fallacious to me to suggest that a, a technology that has multiple potential applications is more likely to work simply for that reason. I think these things tend to have effects and side effects and whatever in humans that are related to each other when the process for developing them is the same. So I kind of dislike shots on goal for that reason. I think it leads people to be overly optimistic about a company's prospects. Well, just as you were saying that, it occurred to me that I would extend this metaphor. If Let's use that metaphor. The way I would extend it is that Ligand in some way is selling you the sticks to shoot the shots and not they don't actually have the shots themselves too like beyond your point about the correlated risk they're not generally in charge of running these trials cap cap to saw they sell as material so that that you know right. ultimately that's not as that's not where your upside's coming from but with the omni ab they're selling you if we're going to abstract genetically modified rodents and chicken they are selling you the sticks to shoot the shots but those ultimately that doesn't say the anything chickens that shoot the shots, <laughs> the, the chickens shoot the shots, but that doesn't mean, you know, if you're selling them to bad companies or they're selling them to small companies, like there's, there's still a lot that can, and your sticks may not be very good. Like there's still a lot of abstraction <laughs> there that, and that leaves it out of the company's control. And so that makes it a, I was listening to the podcast you did with Tim Heitman of Investing 501, where you talk of, he he says uncertainty should be a good thing from an investor's standpoint. And maybe that's, that's the best argument I think you can make at this point is that you're uncertain that this will play out. And hopefully you get one of these to go in. But it really, like you said, there's reasons to be suspicious of uncorrelated opportunities and also it just seems like i don't know you're gonna have a lot that needs to go right for this to work out so right yeah i'm so you have right you have a chicken right and the chicken has a hockey stick and that chicken has some probability of shooting the puck into the goal right? Say it's 10%. If you give that chicken 200 chances to hit, to score a goal with its hockey stick, you're still at 10%. You're not at, you're not at any higher because you're going to just have a central tendency of 10%. I think that's what I'm, I'm saying here. But is it my chicken or is it your chicken? Well, that's part of the problem with ligand, right? Whose chicken is it? It's kind of divided in all these different ways because <laughs> what, like, not exactly a third, but it's roughly divided by thirds into the sort of product sales revenues. And that's capped as all, I think. Right. And then it's two thirds licensing and IP and then contract revenues, which is essentially similar. But so... That's sort of the added layer of, okay, so if we sort of move past the shots on goal concept and the the platform concept, there's an additional layer of sort of 
difficulty in understanding where the value of creation comes from, at least from a high level, in the sense that Ligand is partnered with other companies, uh, has contracts with other companies that are doing their own drug development and research, and Ligand's eligible for royalty revenues on sales of drugs that benefit from its assets and milestone payments from certain, you know, drug development milestones that partnered companies might hit. All of that is like, you're sort of tied into the prospect of all these other companies. I think that's what you were getting at. It's, it's, it makes it difficult to analyze the business model, right? Because sort of all of these revenue structures are somewhat idiosyncratic and dependent on a lot of factors that are well beyond the control of Ligand itself. So Ligand's like taught the chicken to skate and taught the chicken to hold the hockey stick, but then eventually the chicken's playing for another team and a different coach is kind of managing the situation. Somehow we didn't get this to be the Mighty Ducks. The well, they probably eventually will have a duck. Oh, ducks are not as docile. I, <laughs> it's probably a reason they have chickens and rats and mice is because these are classically bred for sort of lab research or other lab research or industrial production. Sort of sad to say that about chickens, but and it's sad to say it about the rats and mice too. I suppose at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, I have to say, I just want to mention here real quickly a personal disclosure that as I was, Daniel and I were talking about the the chicken-human hybrid animals that create these antibodies, my wife was uh, in the next room and she heard me and she just let out a giant, gross! Uh, so thanks to my wife, Jordy, for <laughs> providing that insight. <laughs> It is. I mean, it's pretty. Just reading about this company yesterday, it was. And again, one of the reasons that we were attracted to this was because it's been a short seller target for some time. And we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, it's it's a really when you actually. I know with all biotech companies, there's some weirdness once you actually open up the door and try to look into what's going on. Or with a lot of them, I don't want to tar them all. But well, no. But that's. I let's stop there. It's really kind of important to understand that. This is this the biotech playbook for a lot of clinical stage companies, at least pre-revenue companies. And you can think of post-revenue companies as kind of a bundle of pre-revenue companies. But when you're trying to develop an asset, the concentration on one particular indication or one particular application is an important component of success, I think. So for me, when a company has this kind of diluted, diversified approach, it's almost a problem because it makes the asset portfolio more difficult for the investor to understand. You need to have more faith in management that they know what they're doing and they're allocating resources appropriately to sort of a much less focused set of activities. And so I think it's important. I, th I just think that distinction is important that, you know, well, and a it's concentrated biotech would be, you know, same thing we talked about with Amazon, like a startup being focused is valuable. 
and it helps make a good, better investment decision. Well, and it's interesting you brought up trusting management because they, I said asset management, it's sort of like when you get a bank and they've got a ton of loans on their balance sheet. Look, again, if you're one of those people who can read all day and you're, you know, a big heavy book lifter, <laughs> maybe you can sort through all the loans. But at some point, there's that you reach that threshold where it's not efficient to continue hunting down more and you have to rely on some heuristics to make a call. And that to me is the case here too. Can you trust management to continue to be successful in choosing their partners or in selling to the right companies so that they use OmniAB? Or, you know, Captasol is more, again, of a typical product as we understand it. But that's, I guess, what you're counting on and hoping for from the company, which is to go back to the story. You know, the author points out that the company expects adjusted earnings of $3.2 a share, which it trades at about $100 a share. So it's a high PE. So you're kind of counting on continued growth. I, I looked at their presentation, their adjusted earnings for last year, and it looked like, you know, I have caution about adjusted earnings. This year, they're adjusted heavily because of their sale of Promacta, which registers as a huge gain on the income statement. But you know, it's it's a one-time gain, so one-time they've. Deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's an interesting. I think that trust and can they grow the earnings? The other aspect that we sort of touched on, but I don't know if you wanted to take any other comments on, is the idea of them being a platform company, a platform platform in the biotech pharmaceutical space is there anything does that add anything here to you or do you think that it's clear enough how they mean it and how they're using it i think it's i mean i get it right we talked about they sort of have these this plug and play aspect or at least with a major part of their revenues with capsule they're they're sort of facilitating drug development and it's they have some customers that buy this stuff. I don't know how well protected that business is. I also don't know how interrelated Captasol is with, presumably it helps make it's complementary to their other IP, but I don't really know. And I don't, I didn't look at their presentation very carefully. So I don't know what kind of case management is making around that. I think you and I are just bearish on the I idea of a platform company in general and it kind of ties back into the shots on goal diversification thing i think a platform can is not always but can simply be a a way for uh management to avoid having to describe the business model in a sentence and if you can't describe the business model in a sentence that's kind of challenging thing for investors so what you do instead of saying like, well, we have this technology over here that does this and some people buy and some people don't. And then we have this semi-related technology over here that we license to certain partners in the drug development process. And we have this other thing over here. You just say, it's not that we're unfocused. It's that we have a platform and the platform has all this value. And I think investors buy that more often than they probably should. I'm an anti-platform guy. What are the successful platforms? Uh, uh, Amazon Web Services? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's platform. I think the thing is that platform has such a f- stretch definition. And I think that's why it's interesting here. The idea is 
we're you could just say we're selling a necessary service to biotech and pharmaceutical companies but by saying platform you try to make it sound more repeating more more scalable i don't know but yeah i i i hear with you i hear what you're saying and i think that's a reasonable take i i share your skepticism towards platform companies we were trying to look at the companies so we're trying to look the long case and part of the long case is also understanding you know what's going on with this company and we try to i guess we can open this up if listeners want to follow up but we were trying to understand what happened to the company in the last couple of years because as i said and we may get into the short cases this has been a short seller target for a long time but it's kind of steadily risen and then really scaled up as a stock last year 2018 it peaked on October 1st or September 28th, just short, just above $250 a share. 52 week high is actually $278 a share. Jeez. And now it's 52 week low is 85 bucks a share. It's close. It's at like 97 and a half as we speak on September 27th. And we were trying to figure out like it was a really sharp descent. It was a sharp climb, but it was also a sharp descent. We couldn't really find the closest there was to a filing was the announcement of Omniab, the acquisition of Omniab as a platform, which in I could see the history being written about the company if this indeed does go a lot lower, where they say that was a pivotal turning point. But it doesn't seem – there was no news about it or anything. Yeah, I don't know. So just sort of sharing that for listeners, that's some context here. The stock has come down quite a bit. It's, it's trading more or less where it was. I mean, it's lower even than it was in 2016. So it's essentially wiped out three to four years of of gains. Most of those gains happening in the 18 months before October 2018. So I think that's just, you know, stock price context. Yeah. Well, I think we're talking about a company that is allegedly sort of de-risked in some way or that the financialization or the platform or all these things somehow are generative of value. The multiple shots on goal create sort of some level of growth opportunity and upside that, um, that is attractive relative to other biotech companies. And then you have the sharp spike and the sharp sell-off in the stock. I think that shows that the market doesn't know what to do with this thing either in some respect. And that goes back to the short, you know, Citron research was bearish on the company. There was a seeking alpha contributor who was also bearish on the company who actually got in some trouble, I think with regulators over the presentation of the thesis. So short sellers don't like this, this one, I think probably partly because of the difficulty in understanding it. We haven't talked about this very much, but there's a large investment in Viking Pharmaceuticals on the balance sheet, which is sort of these intercompany investments further complicate the issue. I think that that's the key tension here between a sort of, and it comes down to probably a lot of the share price is how much the market is buying management story versus the more bearish approach to the stock and whoever's in control of that narrative probably has 
has sort of their way with the share price in the short term, which is why we see these giant spikes. I think it's no one really knows what to do with this thing. So that could be an opportunity on the upside, but I think uh, just as often it's a, a risk factor. Yeah. And to, I, I think it's worth sort of hitting a couple points on the short thesis. And then also the one big event from this year that I think is interesting, which is their sale of Promacta. There were the articles. So the short thesis, the first time I became aware of it was what you referenced to Lemelson Capital back 2014. And then they became, I, I can't remember formally what happened, but they, they're, they're, or the SEC. We have a news story on it last year, but essentially called them out for being short and distort. And I think they were essentially saying they were charged by the SEC, short and distort scheme. I don't know how that has played out since then, but we should also maybe say that that seem it's seemingly unusual. I feel like pump and dump is like a far more frequent thing that attract on the long side is a far more frequent thing that attracts regulatory attention versus short and distort campaigns just on like a frequency basis of hearing about it. This is the only time I've seen it happen personally. So it's like a very, another reason ligand is kind of a unique little chicken. Well, and it's interesting because it was a short thesis that didn't play out for a long time, obviously. And also it, it didn't play out period. I think that the argument was basically Promacta, which I'll come back to as the big event was going to be impaired in the relatively near future, which it wasn't. And then it was some like stretched arguments about the balance sheet. They had a shareholder deficit, but it didn't, you know, they still had cash on the books. It wasn't like they were at risk of any default or anything. So that's where I think the SEC kind of called them and said, that was problematic. It's a little it, excessive. Yeah. Well, and just looking at our news story on it, the author also cited a European doctor's negative view on it without pointing out that that doctor invested in the author's fund. So there was some, some, yeah. so anyway, but that was one short thesis that came out. We published another article in 2018 from somebody named Alan Belosky that was basically going at Captasol and arguing that Captasol is not really all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> Again, it got is this I'll, this sort of connects to the Citron research one that came out this year, and it appears to me that Captasol is still. Is not a huge grower for them, but it does appear to be growing. So I'm not sure how directly this played out. I didn't digest the thesis in full. Then we've got the Citron piece from this year. Citron research obviously is quite notable. They essentially, it sounds like they said they were doing work on it, but they also kind of saw a Grants Interest Rate Observer article. We don't have access or I don't have access to the Grants Interest Rate Observer, but that's a, I think, a shop that's renowned. So you don't the, read enough. I, it's something in this case, it, I pay for a lot of subscriptions and I do not pay for a grants interest rate observer subscription. It's a, it's, it's not a cheap subscription to get a, your hands on, but you know, I respect the work they do. Citron. I Citron, I think wanted to sell this as the next Valiant. They said, look, Ligand bought 
Vernalis, I think is the name of the company. And then all of a sudden they started doing funky things. This was in 2018. They also have these shares in Viking, but Viking is their, like their relationship with Viking is both being undersold and oversold. And they claim that they have all these other things. To me, the Citron research thesis boiled down to, I think what we were talking about earlier, which is the company is acting like it's a steady, diversified sort of pharmaceutical holding company almost, when really it's still just a biotech company that's speculating on uh, what's going to get approval. And when you actually look at the value and value based on earnings, which biotechs generally are not based on near-term earnings because they're you know, they are a shot on goal for something much bigger. I think that was the core of the argument. Citron likes to uh, add other elements to their theses, but that to me was the core of the investing challenge, which, yeah, I think is pretty, pretty fair to, to work through. Well, they also went one step further in some of the milestone. They visited the offices of some of the milestone or partner companies and, this is a technique that short sellers use. They go to a location and photograph it and show you the photographs. And if the office is empty or looks empty when they take a picture, then there's an inference there that the company is like maybe not that robust or maybe not that useful a partner. And there's that in Citron too, which I wouldn't jump to conclusions based on the photographic evidence they presented, but it is, uh, Worth keeping in mind that if you're partnered with early stage biotechnology companies and you're expecting to book milestone payments and revenues, those companies are constantly at solvency risk or at liquidity risk. They um, are dependent on the goodwill of financial markets to sort of keep the lights on. So it's important to recognize at least and I think Citron is pointing this out that some of these partners are not, they're not the Amgens of the world. They're earlier stage and potentially riskier in general. So I think that there's a little bit more bite to that aspect of the thesis of, of the short side anyway. Right. That's fair. And, and I looking at their conclusion beyond also extending Wayne Gretzky's quotes, Citron writes that, once investors see that they do not own a farmer ETF, but rather a collection of lazy man subpar assets, we think the stock will Oof. go down. But I think that essentially, but that's, uh, yeah, that's sort of it, right? Is that there's, you're, when you're talking about a company that trades at 30 times PE, adjusted PE, you're trying to understand what that means. The company does have net cash, but again, where do they, they also have a what six, some fairly large six hundred million note payable due twenty twenty four. A convertible note, yeah. Convertible. Note. Well, yeah, it, no, but it, it's yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I just I was actually noticing the CEO just bought back or bought some of the convertible himself. So I don't I didn't look at the convertible terms, but that's it's always interesting when something beyond your standard 5% yielding senior note is on the balance sheet. So, uh, <laughs> you don't find that interesting. I find it fascinating, Daniel, <laughs> which is why we do this podcast. Go I, ahead. I wanted to get back, get back to, 
Promacta. You said you would right. do that. Do you have anything else to say about? Well, so it's it, Promacta was again. It was part of one short thesis. The argument that I would go away. It was a. It was a. An asset that they, the IP to a drug that they licensed to Novartis, and Novartis is a major company, and they sold it for $827 million, which this is a company with a market cap now of around, of under 2 billion, I think, if I did the math right. And that is, yeah, under 2 billion. Yep. 1.87 on Seeking Alpha. So it was obviously double that at some point, but yep. it was already well, it had sort of gone back to its 2000, early 2018 levels by the time they announced this deal. And I just, it's interesting to me, I guess it's because it changes the story or maybe it shows lack of, I don't know. It's just interesting to me. This would seem to have been a, you know, anytime you can turn an asset into a third of your market cap, it would seem to be a good thing, but apparently that's not that's not how it was received at all by the market, by commenters on Seeking Alpha. It, yeah, well, I don't it's know. like when you have a you drafted a really great player, and then they become this big money free agent, and you let them leave in free agency. Was that necessary? Like you did a good job up to a point, but. If you let them walk, then, you know, your team's prospects, like the, it's the free agent chicken on the hockey team, <laughs> if it is the Gretzky. But you uh, traded it away. You get at least you got something. Ligand is the Edmonton Oilers of the, I don't <laughs> right. know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry to the Oilers fans out there. Sorry. Of the, of the chicken, of the chicken hockey NHL. <laughs> so it's really tough. Uh but I think that's like I think that goes back to probably your thesis on this company has on some level to tie into this asset management idea. If you think that this company is going to earn outsized returns relative to the risk, you have to trust that management is going to make good capital allocation decisions, including sell decisions of its assets, or that it will license its intellectual property at outsized value. It doesn't look like the Promacta deal sort of met that expectation in the eyes of the market. And that's something you need to look out for. It's actually something that Citron touches on briefly in their short thesis on Ligand, which is like, okay, they're invested in Viking, but it's not clear how valuable even Viking insiders think that Viking stock is. Mm -hmm. uh, why? And then... If you, if you have this aggressive and attractive growth strategy, maybe it makes sense to buy back shares, but is that necessarily like, what, what are you going to do with all this cash on your balance sheet now? Is the platform valuable enough? Do you have capital assets or intellectual property to develop that will actually benefit shareholders disproportionately? I don't know. It's weird that you're also buying back stock at the same time. So like, how are we threading this whole needle of a free cash flow generating company versus one that has all this sort of promising intellectual property upside? I think the market is completely baffled by that. And I think that's probably the right way to think about it. Yeah. And I think that's when you come back to sort of a, I, I don't know if you're gearing up for a conclusion, but it, to me, it seems, I am. 
Yeah, well, we gotta go soon. <laughs> yeah, we're we're pulling up the you know dropping the wheels, but the to me that's where the I think you're right to highlight that that lack of clarity because it suggests if you're a company in the biotech pharmaceutical area with growth prospects in theory you should be able to put capital to work and if you're not able to put capital to work for anything better than a share buyback and if you've announced share buybacks in the past right at the peak of your company's worth of your share price worth it's there's yeah you're it's like where do you not great what's your reinvestment pipeline what's your where are you gonna go and i I understand right now that biotech as a whole is not having a great time of it but which is not good for ligand but then yeah that specifically i think where do you go with a where do you put (laughs) your money you've diversified your your risk and then you still have Biotech market risk, industry risk. Congratulations. Good job. You're still a complete whipsaw. Yeah, I think that this one is just a total mystery. I think it might even stay a mystery no matter how much homework you did on it. But I think it's sort of a fascinating company. There are just some of these companies that want to have this story both ways. They want to be de-risked and platform and diversified while also being in the exciting world of biotech. Shots on goal, yeah. Yeah, I think you just... I think. You, you know, you take a certain level of market risk and you have the investment opportunities associated with that. And that's, and you, you can financialize and, and do licensing and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, you're just sort of chopping up the same risk and opportunity set that every is available to everyone. And, yeah. uh, yeah. So maybe that's a good spot to land kind of a screeching halt, but, um, <laughs> Screeching I, chicken. The chicken is the body check. The chicken has come to roost. <laughs> oh, all uh, right. I really got to go. I got to run. So, okay. Uh, all right. Well, all right. good. Good stuff, Mike. Go ligand. Yeah. Great ligand. Yeah. <laughs> ligand. I thought we. Well, I forget what we agreed. Okay. Bye, Mike. All right. I got to run. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, please email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you have a chance to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, we would really be grateful for it. We read everything and we do our best to incorporate feedback. For example, we had a little discussion about FinTwit and reading signaling on this episode that we cut out of the episode and have thrown on at the end as a little bonus. So if you want to hear us riff, stick around for a couple more minutes. If not, no worries. This has been a Seeking Out production. Thank you for listening. And see you next week on Behind the Idea. Also, maybe, you know, if uh, I feel like there's a portfolio manager fetishization of how much reading you do and i kind of tend to want especially on twitter a lot of these people and i wonder if all of that kind of intellectualism and i read so much is actually just kind of cover for the fact that if you're a portfolio manager you're sort of a member of this like idle rich gentry class and so you have to kind of assuage your ego that you're not just sort of loafing around all the time picking stocks by creating this intellectual aura around yourself of like this really devoted autodidact who reads all the time (laughs) what do you think daniel
Am I am I hitting a nerve? <laughs> no, sir. No nerve. I think you're coming on strong with the socialist hat this this morning. Oh, it's not socialist to say that portfolio managers just kind of. I mean, let's just be. You're not like breaking rocks, you know. No, no rock breaking. And you have to kind of. I mean, you have to act like you're doing something that other people aren't doing. So I guess reading is a handy. I would say that people who have the time to tweet about the amount that they're reading on anything would fall into this category of trying to justify the time they spend by getting other people to agree with them that the time they spend is useful. I think that's fair. I think I think <laughs> I the, love that sentence. The performance <laughs> other people do agree with them that the time they spend is useful. <laughs> Everyone, please Listen to me. I'm spending my time in a productive way. Yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, you find a cool quote that sounds the same as a lot of other quotes, but somebody else said it. And so then people smash the retweet button, smash the like button. Uh, and that's what makes Twitter, financial Twitter go. And I think it there's a little bit more outrage in other corners of Twitter, I think. But otherwise, I think that's sort of... I was just... We're we're digressing, I think, because I was I was just going to say that Instagram to me is the most performative to some degree, but Twitter's got its own brand of performance. Well, let's be honest: the financial industry professionals don't lend themselves so much to Instagram, probably <laughs> in aggregate, on average. <laughs> Although there are some people who are doing like a lot of fitness challenges and stuff, so you know, there is a fitness aspect to Twitter. I do think the chief relative positioning coolness factor is related to reading habits, probably, in on financial Twitter, at least. You're right, we're digressing a little bit, but I feel like kicking that, kicking that nest of some kind, I think it's a bug's nest, flying bug's nest. Anyway, if you don't feel like being performative about your reading, seekingalpha.com slash pro plus, it'll we'll help you. Help you also save time. No, we know also that when you're tweeting, composing a tweet about how much you're reading, that time that you're spending composing the tweet is not being spent reading. And neither will the time that you monitor the tweet's performance. So <laughs> I'm on to you. I'm on to you, folks. <laughs> you're not always reading. Clear. <laughs> Seekingalpha.com slash pro plus. <laughs>